And those who are able, please join us and stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading comes today from Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food, day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we... We desire to be attentive to you because you are speaking to us and your words are life and we need you and we need your word. And so we pray knowing our weakness that again you would visit us by your spirit, uh, that you would open our ears and our hearts to pay attention and that you would speak clearly to us that we might draw nearer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, our custom oftentimes is to not just focus on a certain topic, but to work through different passages of the Bible. And one of the things that I think that makes that such a valuable practice is it forces us to pay attention to things that we otherwise would prefer to ignore. 
If I'm honest with myself, I would prefer to ignore suffering. It's not something I particularly like to think about, at least not deeply. It's certainly something I don't want to be too connected with. And my guess is that's probably true for most of us. Uh, we're in a culture that tries to not think too much about suffering. Almost every story we read or we watch has a happy ending because that's how we would prefer things to be. We want to ignore suffering. But the Bible doesn't let us. Again and again, Scripture helps us honestly to look at the difficulty that we see in this world. And we see that in the Psalms that we've just read. We, we have here really one Psalm that was divided into two parts, but if you noticed, it's a recurring refrain. They're put together, and it really is just one long poem that's written. And the, and the way that probably can best encapsulate where it's coming from is, is what we saw in verse 6, where he says, My soul is cast down within me. Now, that's a summary, but it's hard to really capture with just that phrase. And so it's worth considering a few of the images that he gives. And if you don't have your bulletins in front of it open, I invite you to have them open because we'll be kind of looking at some of these. And there are three images especially that I think at least stuck out to me as describing what is going on in the mind and heart of this psalmist. The first one we have in verse 3 when he says, My tears have been my food day and night. He doesn't have an appetite. Food is not at all desirable to him. In fact, the only thing that really seems to be nourishing for him is his sadness. He kind of feeds on his tears, perhaps because it's better to feel sad than to feel numb. Then we get the image in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. We're meant to imagine waves violently crashing against the shore. And somehow he, as he's writing, is right in the middle as waves are smashing into him. We oftentimes think of waves in a very pleasant way, like when you're walking along the beach and, and you hear the soothing you know, sound of the waves, but for the people of Israel who were generally not seafarers, they saw it very different, that, that waves were destructive, that waves were chaotic. And, and fair enough when you understand the force that waves actually can have. I was reading this past week about how a tsunami, you know, when you have this long wave, tall wave coming at 30 miles an hour, an oceanographer was saying it's roughly the same force of hundreds of tanks crashing into the shoreline and destroying everything they come into contact with. And the psalmist is saying, that's me right now. I am experiencing wave after wave crashing into me. Something happens, and, and when I'm just feeling like I can catch my breath to recover, something else comes, and something else comes. And every time this wave is crashing into me, I am being splintered apart. And then the, the third image Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I've never experienced a deadly wound. You know, I've never been stabbed, never had a gunshot. I guess most of you haven't either. For me, when I think of the time that I was most aware of a wound is when I was 10 years old. 
And my best friend and I, for some reason, decided that we needed to carry a concrete block together to move it from one place to another, and it slipped out of his hands while I was still holding it and just crashed into my ankle, and there was blood everywhere, and I was crying as if I was uncertain that I'd make it through the next hour, and I was just aware in that moment of nothing else but pain. Pain was all I could think about. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I have experienced emotionally a gunshot wound. The pain is so intense, my mind can think of nothing else. And what is it that's causing that wound? It's, it's the question, the taunt, the simple taunt that people have said to him, where is your God? Where is your God? You trust in God, and yet tears are your only food. Waves are breaking over you. Notice how he even says it's your waves, God. He knows that God is the one whose hand it comes from. Where is your God? And the thing that torments this person is he has no clue. He himself is asking questions. He asks, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? My soul is cast down within me, he says. And as we enter in these images, we know he's not just talking about the blueness that sometimes we feel after a few days of bad weather or, or even the, the pronounced grief we sometimes have at time of, of loss. There's something deeper and heavier where he does not know how he is going to be lifted out of the sorrow that he's feeling. He cannot imagine in that moment things getting better. And he's not even sure he's able to try to keep going. He's being attacked, besieged by hopelessness. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what that's like to be in a time where you cannot imagine being happy again. It's important to notice that there is no evidence here that this condition that he's in is due to anything that he has done. I mean, we sang Psalm 51. That's a psalm where David is recognizing, I am experiencing agony and it is my fault because I've sinned. But there's nothing like that here. For all we can tell, he is someone who has prayed faithfully. He has been faithful before God. He was faithful in going to the temple. And now, even in the midst of his faithfulness, he has done everything right, and yet he is in agony. You know, we should recognize something important here, and that is, as a follower of Christ, it is entirely possible that you can be doing everything right and yet experiencing real deep misery. There is an essay that I read um, a few years ago that I was struck by. The title kind of says it all. The title is, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And his point is that so many of our contemporary praise songs are upbeat. They're so cheerful. And what they do is they imply that the Christian life should be really one nonstop salvation party from the time you confess Christ until you die nonstop happiness. And, and that's not the same message that we get from the Psalms, is it? The Psalms speak of despair, of hopelessness, of brokenness. They characterize a very different kind of life. 
You know, the reason I emphasize this is that if you find yourself in a time like this, where you are truly miserable, maybe, maybe you are even there right now, you need to understand that this is not a sign that you have done something wrong. There is not some failure in your prayer technique. There is not some lacking in the decisions that you've made necessarily. It is entirely possible that you can do everything right and yet still experience misery. And it is not a sign that God has forgotten you or rejected you. And if you need any confirmation beyond this psalm, just just think of the one that we follow. Sometimes we sing a song in this church, Man of Sorrows, about Jesus. Have we ever thought about what we're saying? That he was a man of sorrows. You know, he himself says, as he's coming to the garden, my soul is sorrowful, which could have been translated, my soul is downcast. And many think he's actually alluding to this psalm. And Jesus prayed Psalm 42 and 43. And he endured it. Now, on the night he was betrayed, he, and the garden offers cries with tears. Tears were his food. He is betrayed by his friend, abandoned by the others. He is arrested. He is mocked. He is beaten. He is crucified. Wave after wave crashes upon him. And while he's on the cross, what is it that he hears? He hears, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. And do you not think that that didn't cut Jesus? Jesus himself, in his delirium, cries out to God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows the reality that you can do everything right and still endure misery in this world. And so we should not be surprised by it either. But what I want us to also see is that this psalm is not just about that. We don't see just resignation, just giving up to the immense sorrow that he's enduring. No, what we see is a fight, a fighting for hope. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how how we sometimes let our souls talk to ourselves too much and we need to talk back. And here is the prime example of someone who does that. Do you notice the refrain that we heard three times? He quite literally is talking to himself. He first questions his mood. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Then he exhorts it. Come on, hope in God. And then he tells why. He tells himself the gospel. I will yet praise him, my salvation and my God. He is fighting. And so in this psalm, we see our calling and our hopelessness to fight. And we see more than that. If we pay attention to the psalm, we see truths that can arm us as we seek to fight hopelessness as well. And so in our remaining time, I'd like us to notice three Three truths that come through in this battle that we see in these verses. And first truth that I want us to notice here as he is fighting his hopelessness is that your hope is in God. You know, when we are finding ourselves numb and empty and overwhelmed, we are beset by two temptations. 
One of them is to look for the things closest to us to try to fill us. So we might try to lose ourselves in work because work gets us a sense of identity, or we, we, treat, we try to take comfort from friends and family, or we, we seek to find joy in the good things of this life, like walking outdoors or a nice meal or even a good book or a movie. And, and none of those things are wrong. They are all good. But none of those are capable of filling us when we are in this emptiness. And so when we come to the awareness that they are insufficient, that brings us to the other temptation, and that is simply to give up, to resign ourselves to hopelessness, to believe the lie that there is no hope. But I want you to notice that this psalmist does neither of these things. He knows in the midst of his despair that his hope is found in one place, and that is in God alone. That's how it begins, doesn't it? It says, As a deer pants for water, so does my soul thirst for you, O God. Do you hear that? He says, In my despair, I realize that what I need is you. Somehow, through whatever has taken place, he has lost sight of God. He has lost sight of the reality that God loves him. He has lost sight of the fact that God is present. And he knows that's what he needs. I mean, we see that even as he's reflecting longingly, you know, verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. I remember what, was used, what used to be where I, I saw you, God, and I knew that you loved me. And in our hopelessness, that's what you and I need. You, more than anything else, need to know that you are loved by God. That God is real, and he is near, and he is good, and you are his child. Because only as you begin to see that will everything else fit the way it should. Our hope is in God. Notice the prayer in 43 verse 3. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Send forth your truth and light. Open my eyes because I have stopped being able to see. Help me to see your face. Help me to see your smile that I might praise you. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. In my experience, when we are brought through the refining crucible of suffering, our prayers get simpler. And we stop getting detailed and telling God, this is what I need, this is what I need, until at a certain point we just start saying, God, what I really just need is you. I think that's what's going on in Gethsemane when Jesus is praying. You know, he is praying, take this cup from me, but more and more you hear him saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you and whatever you want, Father. Because he knows what we need to know and that our hope is in God. And our hope is in God even though God doesn't make sense to us. It's one of the things that's most striking to me about this psalm, how you see these two things side by side. He is utterly bewildered. When will I see you? Why have you done this? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? There is no answer to these questions. He does not 
understand, and yet, even as utterly confused as he is, at the very same time he will pray, as the deer wants water, so I long for you, Lord. We can be fused, confused with God and still know that our hope is found in him. And that's important to know because, I mean, we try to make sense of suffering, don't we? How many times when we've seen something either happen to ourselves or someone close by, we try to figure out what God is doing, and maybe God is teaching us something, or, or this is actually working out for the better, but quite honestly, there are many times where there is nothing we can say to explain it. Just two days ago, I was at a funeral for a friend of mine, David Smith, who was the pastor, the PCA pastor in Crete, um, you know, 45 minutes south of here. About a year ago, when he was preaching on Father's Day, halfway through his sermon, he couldn't preach anymore. He didn't know why. His words just wouldn't come to him. Got an MRI. It's cancer in his brain. And over the next year, he stopped being able to speak in the logical trains of thought. He could never preach again, though he longed to. He stopped being able to remember words. He, he forgot names, even names of his family. And then he lost his life. And there is nothing, I think, that we could say, say, ah, this explains that. This is what makes it all right. For someone who is a loving and faithful pastor and husband and father to be taken from this world, there is no explanation that we have. And I know David didn't have an explanation as he was losing one thing after another after another. And yet, though he was utterly confused, what was remarkable to me was how in this last year he never stopped putting his hope in God. You can be confused with God and yet know that your hope is found in him. Again, we see that in Jesus, don't we? I mean, he cries out, why? Why have you forsaken me? Just shortly before he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God will confuse you. Of course he will. He is God. His ways are so far beyond ours, and there will be so many times that we will feel the agony of not understanding, and yet he still is where our hope is found. Our hope is in God. The second thing I want us to see is that hope is a choice. I realize that that is a kind of a strange thing for us to say because hope oftentimes is connected with personality. We think of hope in relationship to optimism, that some people are just more naturally hopeful and some of us are more pessimistic and naturally hopeless. And the implication is that we don't really have any control over whether or not we can hope. But that's not what we see in the psalm, is it? He's fighting. He says to himself, hope in the Lord. He is choosing to fight for hope. Now, even as I say that, I want to make sure that I'm not being misunderstood. There are many times, or at least there are some times, that people experience hopelessness, and it's directly connected to something biological or physical. And I strongly believe that there are things, that chemical imbalances are real, and that, that medicine sometimes can make an enormous difference as we're fighting hopelessness. By saying that we can choose to hope, I'm also not saying that there is some sort of magical switch within us that if we can just locate, we can go from despair to pure joy. And we don't see that here. We see a process that is slow and agonizing. 
I mean, it begins in this despair where he says, tears are my only food. And then, and then we see him fighting. And so he says, my soul is cast down within me, in verse 6. And then he says, therefore, I remember you. So he is fighting. He is trying to remember the things of God as he's experiencing despair. But as he moves to remembering who God is and how God is a God of steadfast love, he finds himself brought to confusion. You are my rock, God. Why have you forgotten me? But then as he's working through confusion, eventually in his helplessness, he just cries out in prayer, Vindicate me, O God. Send forth your truth and your light. And eventually as he's working through this and he's calling out to God, it seems like the Holy Spirit breaks through his despair and shines light in his heart and he sees the future. Verse 4 of 43, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. There is a process here, but there is a choice. He is choosing to fight for hope. And I want you to understand as well that no matter how low you are, no matter what the situation is, you have a choice. A choice to fight for hope rather than give in to hopelessness. And these are choices that we face not even in the worst, only in the worst moments, but even even in the simple moments, you are constantly hearing words of hopelessness if you're paying attention. I was thinking about how this applies for myself. I was thinking, you know, some Sunday mornings when I'm preparing, I, I feel this weight of the reality that this passage is beyond me and that I am not fit to preach this. And I, I hear thoughts of, you, you haven't been praying about this enough. You don't feel this deeply enough. Who are you to stand up in front of people? Now, in that moment, I have a choice. A choice to just listen to those words or a choice to talk back and to fight for hope and to say, that may all be true, but I'm a child of God. And I, I belong to Christ and he works through flawed people. And even in my weakness, the Spirit can do what I cannot. We have choices before us. You know, I said a moment ago that what our hope is is found in God. And you know one of the choices that we face, especially when we're in despair, it's to cut ourselves off from the things that we need most. If what we need most is God, and we do, then we need to pray. We need to spend time in God's Word. We need God's people. And the problem is when we're in despair, those are the things that we feel like we least need. There's a choice in those moments to fight. And again, we see this fight in deeper and more powerful ways in Jesus. When Jesus is in the garden, we're told by Hebrews, it says, He, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross. He had hope. He knew that beyond the cross is the resurrection and redemption of many people, and there was joy for him. But what is he doing when he's in the garden and he's praying again and again and again? He's fighting. He's fighting to move from despair to hope. And we see in him that hope is a choice. You can choose to fight for hope. And then finally, the third thing we see is that those who fight for hope, those 
who wait on God will one day rejoice. That's the truth, I think, that really that is the anchor to this psalm. It's the truth that we've already considered when we looked at verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. What drives him is the reality that as much as he is in despair in this moment and tears are his only food, as much as wave upon wave is crashing upon him and his soul is torn apart by questions, he knows that one day this pain will be gone. And one day he will rejoice and sing praises to God. And he knows this not just because he's some sort of optimist. He knows this because he knows the kind of God that his God is. And he knows God's promises, the promises that I will never leave you or forsake you. And he knows that God is reliable. You know this even more than he does. You know what kind of a God you have. You have a God who is so committed to bringing you into joy that he gave his only son for you. You need to know something that is almost impossible at times to hold on to, but it is so fundamentally true. And that is, no matter how awful things right now seem, or no matter how awful things one day become, you will rejoice. There will be a day where you will be filled with joy, and you will laugh the laughter that is weightless because it is not carried down by sorrows, and your heart will be filled with praise to your faithful, even though he is confusing, God. And the fact that you can't feel that in the midst of your despair does not make it any less true. Paul in Romans makes that exact point. He says this is actually the essence of what hope is. Hope is to see a reality that is beyond our experience that we cannot physically see right now, but we hold on to because it is very, very true. The fact that we cannot feel it doesn't make it any less real. And so we hold on, clinging in the face of despair, in the face of the waves crashing onto us, in the face of the fact that God is confusing, to the knowledge that God fulfills his promises and that he loves us. You know, Paul comforts us even further in this passage because he says, as you are holding on, you do not have to do this alone. Because sometimes it does feel like we're going to just give out hope, doesn't it? In, In the moments of despair, we don't know if we keep going. But he says... You are not alone. See, Jesus has already made it through. He has come to the other side. He is joyful. He is resurrected. He has now tasted the joy that one day we will experience. But he doesn't leave us alone. He gives us the spirit that empowered him. He gives us that spirit to help us. Paul says, the spirit helps you in your weakness. When we come to that point where we have no more energy left and we have nothing to say and we don't feel like we can pray, Paul says the Spirit groans on your behalf. He groans with us 
groans with longing, which is another way of saying he groans with hope. And then the groans that are groans like the groans of childbirth. Some of us have experienced childbirth. Some of us have seen it being experienced. And we know that in those moments there is great pain and agony and perhaps at times despair. But they culminate in joy that is unimaginable. And the groans of the Spirit will one day culminate in unimaginable joy. Suffering is a real thing, and you and I both know that, and we can't ignore it. But this future that is before us is no less certain. And so God says to your heart, and he says to mine, why are you downcast, O soul? Why are you in turmoil within? Hope in me, God says, for you will yet praise me, for I am your salvation I am your God. Let's take a moment to kind of listen in silence, to hear what God says to us in these verses. Maybe you want to look over the verses again, and then as you are listening, allow God to lead you to prayer, asking for help, to lead you to confession, and then I will lead us in a moment in confession together. Father, you see us more clearly than we see ourselves. You know our weakness. You know the times that we have turned elsewhere to find our hope rather than you, and times that we have given up. And Lord, we turn back to you. Our hope is in you and you alone. And so with this psalmist, we pray that you would send forth your truth and your light to us. Help us, Lord, to see your love. Lord, this morning we especially pray for, for those who are in despair like this psalm, Lord, that you would lift them up, that you would strengthen them. And for those of us who aren't right now, we pray that you would prepare us, that you would give us a connectedness to you that helps us to endure the suffering that is before us. Lord, please protect us and carry us to the end that we might rejoice around the great wedding feast that is before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel from Isaiah. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I formed you. You are my servants. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, 
for I have redeemed you. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.